The Drone Look Podcast is brought to you by Nerdgeist.com. A sanitarium for the unexplained. An attack on the Russian consulate in San Francisco. Flying man sighted. The lunar module on the White House lawn. Pittsburgh blown up. Becomes a volcanic paranormal Chernobyl. A mandatory national draft. A Soviet missile over Washington. Two presidential assassination attempts. New York, a stinking mutant ghetto. Siberia set ablaze. World War Three fought with living weapons. This is a podcast about the new universe. Starbrand Cosmological, Cyforce International, DP7 Sociological, Justice Psychological. Hello, I'm Andy Luke, short story writer, cartoonist, novelist, poet. You're listening to the Drone Luke podcast, a gateway drug for my Patreon, where all my marvels unfold in their delight. You can listen to part one of this podcast on 16 platforms, including iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher. If you don't want to, here's a brief recap. The New Universe, aka The New You, was a line of Marvel comics, standalone real-time comics which ran from 1986 to 1989. The first year of the imprint was troubled. However, a big weakness, the high turnover of creatives, was also its strength. Respected veterans, hot new artists, all filled in on stories which were already gathering a passionate fan base. So, I've covered the corporate and creative turmoil and downfall of editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, and we'll pick up the story from there, from the end of year one, and the story of the new, new universe. The perceived lower quality of New Year Year 1 is pretty much responsible for all of it gravitating to discount bins. However, something about clouds and lining. In my early years collecting comics, getting all of these cheap books seemed possible. They became the sought prizes while exploring Ireland's awakening culture of comic shops. In Belfast, Dark Horizons, owned by future superstar John McRae, and Fred Collier, good-natured and gracious to the core, but nonetheless told me the captain of Kickers Inc. was Jack Magnacunt. I flipped through the bargain bins in the Talisman, now Forbidden Planet International, managed by Maliki Coney, later writer on Holy Cross and The Darkness. I journeyed to Thunder Road Comics in Banbridge, manned by Comics Fest showrunner Paul Trimble, and to Lisburn's Outer Limits and Forbidden Planet International in Dublin. I never did find all 174 comics. I was eight short. In the case of this 35-year-old series of a disenfranchised franchise, fans are as passionate as they are grounded. They realise a fair number of first-year books had obvious failings. They feel and accept unoriginal stories for what they are. I feel even the more able script offerings jarred. There were many cliches and some bad art, although things would change These began as comics for kids, maybe teenagers. The interior advertising was for kids, 
The content was written to appeal to people who wanted to be older, kids with limits on their pocket money. Also many characters sported mullets. People had problems with the mullet. Perhaps a bad sign because it was 80s, but mullets in the Marvel bullpen were a big thing. If there was one abiding mistake in the new universe, it was a colouring reproduction. An awful lot of blue rinsed hair. There are far fewer than one in a million people wearing blue hair and I can never forgive that editorial inaccuracy. The New You presented a realist manifesto but one written in Marvel House style. Abundant exposition and internal monologues, bombastic or melancholic declarations typical of superhero comic book dialogue. The tropes were writ large in the stories too. Rogue heroes, suits of armour, anti-hero retreads and many, many encounters with organised crime. Many felt that the stories were boring. Roy Thomas dismissed the new universe as TV movies like Marvel without budgets, which is accurate, although Thomas was one of the worst offenders by this standard. For much of year one, the new you deviated from the simple yet strong premise of the white event. Nightmask felt like a new universe title, though Kickers Incorporated, Merc and Spitfire were quite different in tone. DeFalco cancelled all four and chose to consolidate the line into something manageable and saleable. This left three monthly books, DP7, Cyforce and Justice, with Starbrand continuing bi-monthly. DeFalco appointed Howard Mackey as line editor for year two a newly created role which paid dividends. Brooklyn-born Mackey began his comics career in 1984 as assistant editor to Grunewald. He'd recently been promoted to managing editor of special projects. Mackey found sales were tanking. One of his first acts was to call in a big favour from John Byrne. Byrne was a top-tier superstar artist responsible for revitalising Uncanny X-Men, Fantastic Four, Alpha Flight and Superman. Byrne took over writing and drawing Starbrand, renamed as The Starbrand, for the focus was less on Ken Connell but the tattoo which was a source of his powers. The addition of Byrne gave the book a significant bump in sales. The appointment of Mackie and Byrne rightly suggested Marvel were putting the new universe line in order. Indeed, there was a marked improvement in quality. Each book was richer, with Mackie at the helm. From this point on, absent with the trappings of comics for kids, the books were growing with their readers and ahead of them. Promising the classic New Year's slogan about Windows, soon to become defunct, Mackey asked fans to suggest a new one. The winning entry was by Ernest Pascua of Hawaii, naively jaunty though catchy, nuke me with the new. The slogan was teased out longer than expected, probably because, and Pascua had little idea, it fit their plans so perfectly. Those first months under Mackey included cleaner desktop publishing and design and editorials, but outside the star brand, story content mostly appeared quiet. In the pages of Cyforce, tween nerd Michael Crawley was replaced with Thomas Boyd, making two street-hard young men. Otherwise, it was business as usual, with fill-in workers depicting the homeless sanctuary targeted by the CIA and KGB as you do. On DP7, Grunewald and Ryan completed their fan-pleasing 13-ish organic arc. 
The once hunted group returned to the sanatorium for superpowered folk and faced off against Philip Nolan Voigt, its corrupt director and hyper-paranormal. The next three or four issues dealt with reform. DP7's only white-collar worker, Dr. Randy O'Brien, led efforts to work within the system. The characters returned from the wild, the history of mental abuse in the institution, and a few of Voigt's more corrupt staff saw rising racial tensions and divisions. While Ryan was in top form, it was not my preferred phase of the series. I feel Grunewald's deference to Marvel melodrama and codenames undermined his ambitious and serious intent. Justice seemed something of an anomaly here too. The book had a following because of the dual dimension setting of John Tenson's world, steeped in the fantasy genre. Letter writers asked why magic existed in Howard Mackey's new, new universe. Surely it was a violation of the rules. Well, yes. In Marvel Senior, mutants' powers emerged through genetics. Mutancy showed itself in adolescence, after which time a life path was set. Twenty and not a mutant? Too late. You missed your chance. The new you preferred the term paranormal, very important to Mackey and Gruenwald. It was a means to distinguish a newness of the shared universe. Paranormals were normals until late July 1986. Year 2 was intended as a return to original concepts such as this through a stage of chrysalis and then radical revamps. With issue 15, Tenson, who we knew was once a DEA agent, had the fantasy world of his split perception shattered. Keith Remsen, aka Nightmask, reveals a powerful wizard, Damon Darkwell, to be a paranormal, taking revenge on the DEA agent. Darkwell had kept Tenson imprisoned in a controlled, part-dream state for over a year. The addition of Nightmask here began the trend of cancelled characters returning in new supporting roles, joining a growing tapestry. Nightmare's End borrowed from the burn it down and grow again approach of Alan Moore on Swamp Thing. It was plotted by continuity supremo Gruenwald and scripted by dialogue diva Peter David, the series' new ongoing writer. David came from Marvel's sales department, an assistant to Carol Kalish. Each fill-in issue of his Spider-Man was well remembered for cleverness, wit and humanity so that he was asked back for more and more. Beginning his historic 12-year tenure on The Incredible Hulk, taking it from near cancellation back to prime time, David's growing fan base gathered there, particularly with young Todd McFarlane illustrating. Yet David's 18 issues on justice were immediately more maturing his iconic forethought, clever twists and a darkly sardonic humour. 25-year-old Lee Weeks had drawn a few pages for Eclipse Comics, beginning at Marvel with the DP7 annual the only DP7 tale not drawn by Paul Ryan. Even then, Weeks had a penchant for physical expressions worthy of Kevin Maguire, a quintessential grasp on perspective and presentation. Weeks drew all but three of David's Justice scripts in this run. Released, John Tenson searched for his life's memories and took it upon himself to hunt down paranormals abusing their power. The Justice Killer, the press branded him. David was repivoting high fantasy into a story of a nomadic serial killer. It was all changed at Cyforce too. In an interview for Spoiler County, Fabian Nietzsche relates his move from Marvel's manufacturing department working on sticker books to advertising manager, responsible for in-house ads, promotional giveaways, 
speaking for the company to the public and licensees. From there, he moved to editorial on licensed books and following a request from editor Bob Bodiansky, sold a pitch to Cyforce, a horrific schedule from the get-go that they needed fill-ins, he said. His first story was published in issue 9, a second would emerge in issue 13, by which time Jim Shooter had hired him as Cyforce's regular writer. Initially, Hard Mackey wasn't thrilled that he had inherited new creative teams from Shooter, that he didn't have any hand in. At first he was a little wary, says Nietzscheza. Mackey warmed to him, however, and 22-year-old Ron Lim. Lim had worked a year on his indie comic, Ex-Mutants, and in 1987 he was selling his wares at a convention when a Marvel talent scout hired him on the spot. It seemed to have happened incredibly quickly. His art conveys powerful detail, like George Perez, it's a godly power level, he relates, iconic, yet also conveying the smaller and individual. The man's raw energy of youth is immediately apparent in Cyforce's tonal shift. Nietzsche's trajectory was a microcosm of things, one issue of Chrysalis re-exploring characters, the second issue, beginning with Wayne Tucker's conversion to Catholicism, ends by dropping a point of no return moment where the group leave their sanctuary shelter. The same issue has commentary on the selling of personal data by private intelligence companies, including the Medusa Web, a multinational corporate provider of mercenaries. There's a KGB Siberian project, teased way back in issue one, with its group Paranormals, Krasnoy Sonsti, aka the Red Sun, and Rodstavai, the people's hero, an insane and destructive murdering brute. Fabian subverts a trope of supernaming with the introduction of foreign characters Tampanagitis, Donnerkopf, Gato de Sang, Nikolai Kolbin, Larisa Kochisko, Irina Mityashova, and Damon Dusha. The language is changed. As the book drove into once minor elements of international political conflict, once defensive characters grew to show more aggressive and proactive traits. Here's an interesting quote from John Byrne on his problem with Year One of the New Universe, written in 2005. It did not help that there were two sets of rules governing the content. Nothing could appear in the comics that would refute the notion that they were all real, that they took place in the world outside your window. So writers were forced to try to find stories that were interesting and exciting, but would not end up on the nightly news. Except in Starbrand, of course, where Shooter was free to have terrorists use a nuclear device to hijack a cruise ship in the middle of New York Harbor. I wonder how NBC, ABC and CBS missed that one. Greenwald and Mackey were asking the same question. It was agreed Byrne would take the lead. His first issue of the Starbrand saw Ken Connell, encouraged by his therapist Myron and girlfriend Debbie, to go public. A masked Connell picked up the lunar module Eagle, set on the moon by Armstrong and Aldwin in 1969, and put it on the lawn of Ronald Reagan's White House. Issue 12 followed, with Ken on an egotistical high, refusing to believe Debbie's pregnant child had anything to do with him. Byrne, Mackie and Grunwald appeared in a scene set at a comics convention where headline guest Star Brand was subjected to their sharp deconstruction of his true identity. 
The next page featured the return of the tattoo's previous owner, the old man, shouting Connell's name. He was 500 years old and had tried to get rid of the power due to its curse of immortality and mutation and placed it on an asteroid on July 22, 1986. Following reports of 5,000 deaths at the Comic Con, Myron hears Ken's retelling of what led to the White Event and convinces Ken he must also be free of this power. At the height of Idiot Supreme, Ken botches the job completely, blowing up his and Jim Shooter's home city of Pittsburgh. Having returned the new year to its core concept, now it was punching out of its cocoon with a fuck concept, making it different in every way. The world outside your window had come to an end. Wikipedia's new universe entry state the Black Event occurred at 6.06pm Eastern Standard Time on December 22, 1987. The spontaneous release of energy, disintegrating all matter in a massive spherical volume of space 50 miles in diameter, centered 10 miles, 16 kilometers above ground level. As shown in Justice 18, nearly half a million people are destroyed instantly and thousands more are killed by violent winds of 300 miles per hour, several times greater than hurricane strength, as the atmosphere rushes into the sudden vacuum. Grunewald and Ryan's displaced paranormals leave the clinic to provide aid to one of their own on the way to the former Pittsburgh. What they find is a concave void in the Earth's crust exposing hot mantle and a forming volcano. The first 12 hours of the disaster were told by Byrne, Grunewald and Silver Age artists Sal Basima and Stan Drake in the New Universe's first one-shot graphic novel, The Pit. Though no classic, the book paved the way forward for stories and characters. Among the lore was pit juice, toxic gunk from the creator, leading to deformities as superpowering as the diseases. A major return was Jenny Spitfire Swenson, providing military reconnaissance and humanitarian aid before joining the DP7 group's core lineup. In relation to Pittsburgh, the audacious authorial choice of course caught the attention of the press, who reached out to this new, tighter creative team and brought more readers, another bump to the new used sales. Hard Mackey followed this immediately with another bold move. With issue 19 of the monthly series, New You books rose from 75 cents to $1.25. The editorial feature, Universe News, carried the following announcement. Beginning this month, books will be printed on a better grade of paper with a fuller colouring process, which allows us to do full bleeds, artwork extending the very edge of the paper. Furthermore, we're eliminating all outside advertising and increasing our editorial material from 22 pages to 28 pages. This extra content would include an inside cover recap, pin-ups, previews of the next issue's cover and sometimes backup strips. There was also in-universe media such as diary entries or President Reagan's address to the people blaming a foreign enemy, he meant Libya, and announcing he would ask Congress to expand the Selective Service Registration System. We have seen our fellow countrymen callously struck down in a devastating explosion, which destroyed the city of Pittsburgh and killed at least a million of our brothers and sisters.
Because of America's need to show the nations of this world that we stand prepared to fight back against our aggressors, I will be calling on Congress tomorrow to expand and restructure our Selective Service Registration System. I will be asking all Americans, men and women, between the ages of 18 and 45 to register under this program in the event of a military mobilization emergency. We will be registering people in the anticipation that they will fulfill combat and non-combat roles in the event of a war. We will not allow our borders to be breached, our land to be desecrated, our children to be hurt. The United States will fight back when need be, where need be. God bless America. Howard Mackey embarked on a campaign to stimulate interaction with readers. Following the success of Pascu's Nuke Me with the New, he launched the Write event, asking readers to find names for the four-letter columns. Joining as a high school intern, David Wall provided editing assists on Fantastic Four, Transformers, Thundercats, and Mark Greenwald's Captain America, an official handbook to the Marvel Universe. The handbook is notorious and legendary, a monolithic encyclopedia of fictional summary. Greenwald's editor was Hard Mackey, with David Wall as his assistant, a role he'd reprised from issue 19 of the New You Monthlies. With a new price, new paper, more content, the books began with clean introductory pages. Well-written summary recaps for new and old readers alike. Sometimes it'd be written in character. Together they'd oversee backup strips like Fabiana Cesar and Helector Colasso's Medusa Web Story about Agent Potiphar securing an Iraqi arms shipment, six pages of next to no dialogue, or the tragedy of a paranormal in self-imposed isolation drawn by Mark McLaughlin and Jim Lee. On discussing the locales of stories, they admitted to a lack of diversity and asked readers to propose their cities along with reference leads. While John Byrne played out turmoil in Jim Starlin-esque or cosmic terms, life in New America was explored in the road movie styles of DP7. The higher quality paper ensured the fruits of the art team flourished. Grunwald, Ryan and colorist Paul Beckton were joined by inker Danny Bolanandi back in issue 10, letterer Janice Chang cementing the lineup from issue 16. However, Grunwald's writing, and this isn't only my opinion, suffered from an expanding but separated cast on one hand and his natural academic adherence to those geopolitical motions. Story arcs exploring the pit and the mandatory draft of paranormals created for short, choppy arcs. However, dialogue and pacing continue to keep readers as he tackled notions of displacement through themes such as grief, family estrangement and self-harm. Here's Mark Grenwald interviewed by Joe Field for Cable Access show The Wonderful World of Comics in April 1988. We're talking with Mark Grunewald, who's the executive editor at Marvel Comics in New York, uh, as well as being an editor of a few books. He's also a writer. Uh, first off, uh, welcome to the wonderful world of comics. Uh, tell us what you're working on now and what's, uh, what's hot that uh, Mark Grunewald is working on right now. 
working on both Captain America and DP-7. Uh, actually, on the flight over, I did 12 pages to the latest DP-7, so that's what's hot right now, hot in my mind. <laughs> uh, how is the new universe going? Uh, it's, you know, a lot of changes have been made. You blew up Pittsburgh. Uh, uh, you're putting still haven't the... forgiven us. Yeah. They still haven't forgiven us. <laughs> um, tell us what's going on with the new universe and uh, how things are changing. Uh, basically, it's... Uh, a world going strange month by month. Uh, with the Marvel Universe, you can count on uh, some spectacular things happening. However, the status quo of the, the very world won't change. They're all, we won't blow up a city. We won't change presidents without the election. We won't do these drastic sorts of things, even with the aliens lang landing and the uh, extra dimensionals coming. With the new universe, anything can go. I mean, we can gradually get to a very different status quo than what we have here in the, in the real world, and you're seeing it happen month by month rather than in a series like uh, Watchmen or Kill Raven or Deathlock, where by the time you hit that world, it's already different. Mm -hmm. Here you're watching it in the universe happen month by month, get drastically uh, more different than uh, you know, the, the world outside your window. Mm -hmm. <laughs> A particularly memorable storyline centered on Dave Lander's inability to assimilate to the military lifestyle. Grunewald's theme of displacement therefore charted Lander's spiralling mental illness and the near-fatal consequences. With Gru driving the DEP-7 tour bus, Paul Ryan excelled drawing volcanic ash, imaginative mutations and the language of the boot camp. Becton and Bolinati also made sure the visuals blossomed. Ryan set up the latter. Danny Bildonati was like my American Express card. I never left home without him. That's why we worked on so many titles together. DP7, Quasar, Avengers West Coast and Fantastic Four. Seeking revenge for Pittsburgh, America had embarked on a paranormal arms race, the focus of the New Year's second one-shot, The Draft, with a cover by Ryan. It was penciled by Herb Trimp and coloured by Michael Higgins, who for part of year one had edited four titles in the line. Though 48 pages inking was divided five ways, Phantom Artist Keith Williams, Michael Gustavich, who would go on to draw Icon for Milestone Media, Hot Property Klaus Johnson, the award-winning Kyle Baker, still relatively new to comics, Lee Weeks. Set pieces featured as the story began, but the multiplicity was unusual. Greenwald and Itasia's script was as by the numbers as the pits, setting the event on the stage but hardly getting into the poetry. The exception was the twist ending, which I, I will spend 30 seconds relating. When crushed beneath the boot camp, Wallflower Harlan Mook would be triggered into spontaneous teleportation, leaving behind a small explosion. Bullied beyond his limits, he left the camp once and for all. Mook rematerialized at a live televised White House address, intent on killing Ronald Reagan. To great surprise, Reagan survived a close proximity blast. He was the new universe's Teflon president. Mook pawned Ken Connell good. The draft impacted directly on the lives of DP-7 and also tied in briefly to Cyforce. Thomas Boyd's conscription and subsequent status as AWOL made an interesting thematic bridge. Writer Fabian Nicesia was already playing political thriller and military intrigue with an international scope. Boyd's placement at Fort Benning was Ron Lim's last issue. 
It going to a higher profile three years later with Jim Starlin on the Infinity Gauntlet trilogy. Graham Nolan was another new and rising star behind Batman's Bane and Nightfall and aided by Mark Bagley they allowed Natasia to bring Act 2 of Cyforce to a whopping close. Spoiler for 25 seconds, after a year's absence the Gestalt Cyhawk returns and faces off against his searcher, deranged Soviet hyper-paranormal Rodstavai. The battle begins with the death of a beloved member of the group and sees a Washington monument used as a weapon. Through paranormal means, the conflict was televised, live, culminating in a battle on the White House lawn, and Rod Stavide burning the US Constitution. Issue 26 was a coda, starring only one of the main cast, told from the perspective of journalist Andrew Chaser, a reporter who eerily foreshadows in his looks comics columnist Rich Johnson. Natasia said later, hard copy was the single issue he was most proud of. It does not disappoint. David and Weeks' run on justice is especially friendly. It charts the journey of John Tenson, a man looking for his place in the new you, suffering disassociative identity disorder. To some degree he's a reflection of the sense of disorientation this new world may have created in the Joe on the street. With his trauma of 14 months, in a fantasy as a justice warrior, he is reimagined as a paranormal judging other paranormals. Like Dexter, a serial killer. He leaves behind his victim's head and hands intact, their bodies reduced to a pile of ash, the scales of justice traced therein. Lee Weeks' art is both clean and dripping with fuel from his inks, backed up on occasion by Mike Gustavich with Janet Jackson on colours. Tenson's no-nonsense bleak worldview enables hysterical sarcasm and overall quite a funny book. When Tenson attracts an unwanted cult of followers, there's a scene where they go through potential names for their group. Justice League, Justice Society, Justice Incorporated, and so on. It was clever. In a seemingly inconsequential scene, Tenson uses his shield to manufacture a car breakdown, pretends to fix it so as to hitch a ride. Issues later, we properly meet the driver, a lawyer, who in gratitude seeks out Tenson after his arrest to ensure his legal rights. In David's serials, he regularly repivots a central character and status quo. With Justice, this is a faster-paced process. Tenson comes under the wing of the National Security Agency and Updike, their suave Machiavellian puppet master who might be played by Robert Vaughan and who meets his match in Tenson, yet goes to great lengths to reorientate him and retrain him. In the NSA, he works with Victor Pasco, codenamed Kleenex, for his ability to sneeze in the vicinity of a paranormal. Miriam, who can play back moments in time like an MPEG MP4. Miriam's appearances attend to the importance of letterers like Michael Heisler as a playback dialogue appears backwards to the reader. With David's hallmarks of solid structure, Lee wakes up to his established tones, giving the action weightiness and fluidity. These traits were a warm-up for his runs on G.I. Joe and Daredevil, marking Weeks out as a superstar artist. Tenson's emotional and physical detachment is worked on by his once estranged daughter, Angela, and he searches to adopt fairer attributes like mercy and self-evaluation. Elements of his environment converge when Kleenex and Angela are caught up in the Cyhawk Rod's Divide face-off. It was a prelude to Year 3's event, by far the most organic. The young adults of Cyforce have been taken by Rodstavai, 
to the Siberian Project for Paranormal Research. Similar to Grunewald's clinic, it aimed to therapize and weaponize internees. Tenson, with paramilitary corporation in the Medusa web, ships out to Siberia to break them out. The Siberian Project was a New Year's first crossover, a seven-part epic. It has similarities with the acclaimed Peter David Hulk X-Factor Transable narrative War and Pieces, culminating in 20-odd characters facing off against Rodstvai in a 20-page battle royale. It is mic-dropping. You should read this. As a writer who's largely worked outside the studio environment, I was curious how it all came together. I emailed Fabian Natasia with some of my questions. He had this to say. Since Hard Mark and I all worked on staff at that time, coordinating information between us wasn't that difficult in the least. And when there were only four new U books left, maintaining flow between books was relatively easy. We would all just fill each other's plots and then fill in any cracks with story spackle as necessary. When Mark and I wrote the draft, we just tightly outlined the issues over several lunches. Then I think I typed out the first draft and he tweaked it from there. Then we both scripted the book separately in chunks. As for your breakdown of how you view the books, and here Fabian's referring to the cosmological, sociological, psychological and in his case international, I'm sorry to say that that wasn't any kind of planned occurrence. I think each writer just took the path they saw available to them to tell stories within their own titles. That they ran parallel tracks rather than conflicted with each other was more luck than design, though we certainly saw what our tracks were a few months into the reduction of titles to four. Sadly, by the time the finale of the Siberian project went to print, the axe had dropped on the New Universe books. The new universe was not financially sustainable. Nicesia and new penciler Rodney Ramos continued with their plot for the Cyforce teens to work as an independent unit of the Medusa web. Cyforce 32, a story exploring Soviet Afghanistan tensions, resolved several major character arcs, three years in the making. In Justice, Tenson leaves the NSA to look for his chill pill, found by becoming a counsellor to a paranormal refugee community at Coney Island. Grunwald and Ryan had brought their seven displaced paranormals home in the final five issues with a whopper. Characters Randy and Dave, now AWOL, find a New York downwind of the pit, a supernatural ghetto. In a slam dunk, the rotten apple is a site of the office of Philip Nolan Voigt, tyrannical ex-head of the clinic in his run for the American presidency. Voight mind controls half the group to act as his enforcers. The character serves as something of a template for the radical reinvention of Marvel's Norman Osborn 25 years later. The multi-issue story is a tense political thriller set in a toxic wasteland. It's got the full flavour of DP7's classic year one with renewed emphasis on many favoured inter-character dynamics particularly intensely shy Dave and his unrequited love for Stephanie, a homemaker with the worst marriage. The book's flow is punctuated a little by the conclusion of Voight's storyline, taking place in Starbrand 18, but John Byrne crafts it with DP7's voice. 
After a meeting with Randy and Dave, then star brand holder Jacob Burnley faces off against Voight in the Oval Office in an immensely satisfying finale. John Burns, the star brand, on a bi-monthly schedule, painted a broad overview of New U society from an aerial view. Byrne pivoted the status quo via the tattoo, replicating on a variety of holders. Artist Roger Price, retired carer Jacob Burnley, and increasingly insane Ken Connell, and the star child, the offspring of Connell and Debbie, and a living embodiment of the brand. The sci-fi epic worked best in the finale, issue 19, a high-concept piece providing resolution and closure for the new universe imprint. In the last editorials, Mackie and Wall announced the new universe would continue in a four-issue prestige format series, The War. The War was written by Doug Murray, an unusual choice. Murray's last new U script closed Mark Hazard Merck two years before. The story was typical of Murray's forte as a tale of armed conflict. Tom Morgan lavishly painted this maelstrom of action and explosion. It follows the Fort Benning recruits, Captain Magnacont from Kickers, Nightmask, Jeff from DP7 and others, while geopolitical decisions call on the nuclear option. The series lacks the flavour of the new new universe, a by the numbers machine gun tale which goes nowhere ending with Damp Squid Deum Ex Machinery. Mark Grunewald puts falling sails down to the difference between marketing the initial concept and Mackie's quality where the world was not the world outside your window. Unfortunately by then, said Grunewald, the new universe readership had already been conditioned against these drastic changes. Though vowing the new you would remain separate from Marvel, Grunewald was the first to break the boundaries between worlds. He and Ryan kept the team together a while on Marvel's cosmic hero Quasar and later issues would feature the walls of the multiverse breakdown and appearances by Starbrand and DP7. And Quasar wore the symbol of Connell's tragic and powerful tattoo. And yes, while Jim Shooter and Archie Goodwin laid much of the groundwork for the new U, it was Mark Grunewald who was its paternal godfather. He was involved in every major universe story. If you ask me what was the core concept, the unifying element of the line, well, it sprang from DP7. It was about finding your place in the world. A world, ironically, not unlike our own, filled with globalised terror and adversity, unstoppable elite campaigns, forces we can only seek to get out of the way of and bury our heads in exploration silly jokes, and where we can find them, the worn bodies of loved ones. That's what the new you was. Fabian Natezia, talking to Mackenzie Mackinich at randomville.com in 2004. Looking back, I'm pretty darned happy with a lot of the work. I see the passion, the energy, the desperate desire to try and be Alan Moore, failing miserably at it. But I look back on Cyforce with tremendous pride because we did a lot of good things with those titles in terms of shaking up the status quo of the books and changing the perceptions of what a superhero comic could be. In some ways they were precursors to lots of the excellent, realistic superhero work being done now. I think Fabian's right as far as it goes for mainstream comics and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The new use set a bar of sorts. 
While much else of the era was getting distracted by the post-Watchmen, post-Dark Knight bleakness that would swamp superhero comics with a cycle of depression that's still churning, the career paths of the primary creators buried a truth talented people on talented books. Howard Mackey would co-create the modern version of Ghost Rider with David Wall doing the same for The Darkness and Witchblade from Top Cow. Peter David should need no introduction, a 12-year run on a Hulk, about 10 years on X-Factor, all counted, notable runs on Aquaman, Young Justice, no relation, Supergirl, Spider-Man 2099. Lee Weeks went on to give us Last Rites, a high-quality sequel to Frank Miller's work on Daredevil, and more recently, Daredevil's Dark Knights. John Byrne went on to create one of my favourite comics, the rib-tickling, border-poking, sensational She-Hulk, and in 2015 he was inducted into the Will Eisner Hall of Fame. Fabiana Tezia co-created Deadpool and wrote the best-selling X-Force, the acclaimed series Thunderbolts, and recently finished his novel Suburban Dicks, which publisher Penguin calls an engrossing and entertaining murder mystery full of skewering social commentary set in the New Jersey suburbs. Of his Cyforce collaborators, Ron Lim shot to prominence on The Silver Surfer, penciling Jim Starlin's Infinity Trilogy, which makes up the backbone of phases 1-3 to three of Marvel's cinematic universe. Rodney Ramos has drawn Guardians of the Galaxy and What If for Marvel, and worked all across the DC Universe on Green Lantern, Batman, Justice League and edgy cult favourite Transmetropolitan. Sadly, Mark Greenwald and Paul Ryan are no longer with us in the flesh. Before Greenwald left us in 1996, he would complete 10 years on Captain America and 5 on Quasar, and more of course. Greenwald's ashes, as per his living will and sense of humour, were included in the printing ink of a comic, the 1997 graphic novel reprint of fan favourite Squadron Supreme. In 1991, Paul Ryan began working on Marvel's first family. According to Lambeek, he trailed only Jack Kirby and John Byrne in total number of Fantastic Four issues drawn. Ryan became the only illustrator to marry both Spider-Man and Superman, uh, not to each other. From 2005 to his passing in 2016, Ryan worked on the Phantom comic strip Dailies and seems to have had something of a love affair with the fictional African crime fighter. We also lost Archie Goodwin shortly after Greenwald. After co-creating The New You, Goodwin brought us first English translations of Katsuhiro Otomo's Akira and the work of Jean Girard aka Mobius. He moved to DC Comics in the 90s, writing the innovative crossover event Armageddon 2001, editing James Robinson's acclaimed Starman and overseeing a number of innovative Batman projects. Archie Goodwin died of cancer early in 1998 after fighting the disease for a decade. It can't have been a coincidence that the decision to close a new U came about months after New World Entertainment and Marvel Entertainment were sold to Ronald Perlman's McAndrews and Forbes holdings. Seven years later, Perlman would drag Marvel to bankruptcy. Interestingly, one of those bidding against Perlman for Marvel was Jim Shooter, who had gotten investors and banks behind him. It was not to be, but later in 1989, Shooter and those investors founded a new company, Valiant. 
At first, they published comics based on Nintendo and WWF franchises, but greater success came on acquiring the rights to classic gold key characters. Solar, Man of Adam, Magnus, Robot Fighter, Harbinger, Turok, Dinosaur Hunter, Shadow Man and Exo Man of War. These books topped the charts and apparently there were genealogical similarities at Valiant with how things were done in the new universe. A downplay of myth, more realism, repercussions over a shared universe and a mix of old and new creators. Cyforce penciler Bob Hall talking about the legacy of the new universe in Valiant. It of course led to Valiant where Jim did manage to create a universe and I think because it was a new company. It wasn't competing with itself. The new universe was competing with the Marvel universe. And uh, when you think about that, that's like, you know, uh, me going up against Mike Tyson or something. It, it, it wasn't uh, something that was going to work right then. Um, but it did work with Valiant. Um, it's, it's hard to say how well it worked with Valiant because it was such a collector's market. And so who were the readers, who were the collectors was something that never got sorted out uh, in the 90s for any of the new companies. But um, there are still people who come up to me today and say, gee, Shadow Man was my favorite comic of the 90s, which was uh, a Valiant Universe thing. And probably wouldn't have existed had Jim not cut his teeth on the new universe. According to Shooterworks, even though the new universe sank, Shooter knew the ideas behind it were sound. He proved it at Valiant when he used the same ideas and principles to generate sales records and win industry awards with the Unity crossover. You can see the same ideas in the new universe that wound up being successfully done at Valiant Defiant in 1992 and Broadway in 1995. Reality-based science fiction revolving around a tight universe continuity. In mid-1989, I made my first and only attempt as a role-playing games master. A bright light covers the world for five seconds. Something is different in the world outside your window. We weren't an hour into play before my four teenage buddies insisted their character take a walk 15 minutes down the road. There stood Stormont Parliament buildings, Northern Ireland's government. Five minutes, Stormont was a smouldering crater. I can't begrudge any newly freed creator of fiction the want to wreck and ruin, particularly in a culture so informed by violence, but conflict and story are incredibly different things despite their historical binds. Peace and evolution towards utopia are challenges. As I mentioned, New Universe characters would resurface in cross-universe shenanigans with Gruenwald and Quasar in 1992 and the Starblast crossover 1994. In the realm of prose, Diamond Books published a series of six novels between 1990 and 1992. They were penned by David Peters, not his real name, and the titular character, Simon, was similar to Justice in power set and environment. David began writing one of his hit comics around this time, Spider-Man 2099. In 1993, this series featured a mysterious figure named Annette Prophet, 
and three years later the prophet regained his memories and was revealed to be none other than John Justice Tenson. Justice will return in 2005 with DP7, Starbrand and Nightmask for three issues in Marvel's The Exiles World Tour storyline. Celebrating the 20th anniversary of the line, Editor-in-Chief Joe Quesada, who got his breakthrough with Jim Shooter's Valiant, announced a five-week event with five New Universe one-offs set before the destruction of Pittsburgh. Peter David returned for the Justice issue. There were also several New U backup strips in Marvel titles and reprint graphic novel editions of early Cyforce, Starbrand and DP7. The following year, Warren Ellis and artist Salvador LaRocca reimagined the concepts as New Universal. The series performed well commercially on release and seems to have leaned into the aspects of a big event alternate timeline and differing cosmological makeup. Critically, reviews were mixed. While LaRocca and Ellis's art is fair, it's also artificial in places, lukewarm, insular, and occasionally incoherent. Ellis lost the story files after issue 6, and New Universal pretty much died there. There were a few spin-off miniseries, including one by Kieran Gillen, so I might check that out. In 2013, writer Jonathan Hickman pulls in the concept of the white event, Nightmask and Starbrand, into the main line of Marvel Comics. Where other crossovers have been strictly temporary, this time it was for good. Nightmask is an artificial human named Adam Blackville. Kevin Connor is a young, awkward college student. They've had their own series and I hear they might have joined the Avengers. Pretty good work for a pair of bargain binners, eh? 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 My own interest as a consumer of these concepts pretty much ended in the 90s. The reiterations bore only the franchise similarities devoted to maintaining trademarks. Probably some of them are quite good. The fictions of her earlier years can never be recreated to match the same properties because they are the fictions of her earlier years. I had a little interest in new reports of the imprint until I sat down to reread those original books, to research and write this podcast. And I've been extremely blessed in my research by finding the Marvel Comics New Universe fan page on Facebook. Recently, the group celebrated its 800th member. One of the first people I connected with there was admin Josh Deck. I asked Josh to talk about the group's origins and how it has evolved. Mark Davis is a longtime fan of the new U. Uh, he was a comic shop owner in the 80s and recalls ordering them in for his shop and being enamored with the line right away. He founded the Facebook fan page on August 12th of 2017. Uh, he also ran a bunch of websites and message boards over the years strictly dedicated just to the new U. Mark and I were online acquaintances as fellow Valiant fans for a few years prior to this fan page's establishment uh, through Greg Holland's wonderful ValiantFans.com message board. And we have also collaborated on some indie comic projects together too. Oddly enough, in all that time, we didn't realize we shared a common passion for the new you until sometime in the fall of 2017 when it came up at random in conversation. Mark invited me to join the fan page on uh, November 30th of 2017. 
And as I recall, at that time, it had about 40 or 50 members or so, and uh, only sporadic activity for the most part, as it was just getting underway and picking up steam. Being part of it, in fact, triggered a fresh new level of passion for the books in me, and I found that I immediately wanted to do everything I could to help grow the group. So Mark made me the second admin at some point soon after joining, and ever since then I have taken it on as a passion project to help keep the fires of enthusiasm and love for these comics stoked. Lee Seitz is the only additional member of our group management team as the sole moderator. He shares our deep level of passion for the books. He has kept up a tremendously in-depth website called Nuke Me With The New for many years, dating back to about 2005, I believe, uh, archiving an incredible amount of info on the new universe and all subsequent appearances after the original line ended. I'm really proud of the growth we have managed to develop since the early days. It has been very exciting to have many former creators of the original comics join us and participate in discussion there. We always treat them with the utmost respect, and I'm also proud to say that many of them have been kind enough to put out a good word to others about our tiny but mighty community of nukeheads. It can be very challenging to come up with regular content for a line of comics that has been cancelled for over 30 years. However, there is always a surprising amount of little nuggets to discover. Unusual collector items like promo posters, buttons and stickers, foreign language editions, odd pop culture references, fan art, and the biggest thing is that Marvel does use new variations of the original characters in modern appearances over in their main 616 universe at present. That helps keep it alive and potentially continues to create new fans who had never seen the original material before. It's kind of amazing that there is a whole new Starbrand character in the most current Avengers ongoing series, for example. I always find it a shame that some people can't recognize it, but these comics were ahead of their time in the late 80s. Some of the titles were more successful in both concept and execution than others, and many books suffered from a little too much creative team disruption as well. But despite that, it is amazing if you look at how many legends of the industry actually contributed to the original comics. Overall, the core idea of setting stories more firmly grounded in the real world than the Marvel 616 universe is, and just adding a dash of the fantastic in order to examine the consequences of that, is something that is far more prevalent in many modern comics from many publishers beyond Marvel. The New Universe fan page is a hearty, welcoming and passionate community. Every day there's discussions over alternate fan pages, missing promotional boards and posters, photographs of star brand tattoos and fan created sculptures, stories from behind the scenes, the mystery around the cover artist from Mark 12 which has so far attracted 650 comments. As founder Mark Davis says, it's the group that makes it okay to like the new universe. And that's a great place to leave it. Special thanks to contributors Bob Hall, Josh Deck, Fabian Tezia, Gregory Wright, Phil Bledsoe and Mike Rockwitz, and everyone at the Marvel Comics New U fan page. And also the voice talents of Heart Attack over on Fiverr as Ronald Reagan. This episode marks the beginning of the second year of the Drone Look podcast. I want to shout out all my patrons, especially top subscribers Art Knipe, Michael Daly, Arslan Hyder Ali, Phil Weir, John Robbins, Peter Duncan, Ben Stone, Alan Royal, and Ian Lawther. Next month, a slight change of format when we welcome Katarina Kisilova. 
Katarina will be turning the tables hosting two short interviews. She'll be talking to me about Chaos Magic, my debut poetry collection released earlier this year. Then we'll chat about another book, 10 years in the works, Occupied. Think MASH for the anonymous generation. Occupied is a funny, fictionalised account of Occupy Belfast over 10 weeks in 2011. And I can't wait to share that with you. Playing us out then is a full theme song for Nerdgeist.com. Thanks to Dave Cromie at Nerdgeist for his dedicated coverage of this podcast month after month. It's so great to see a friendly pop media site run by a swell guy right here in Northern Ireland. So over to you, Dave. Nerdgeist.com is where you need to be. We document our passions for you to watch and read. From video and board games to history, science and 